Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 as we continue in our examination of this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Every uh, time Judy does the offertory, she texts me and says, text and title. And uh, I text her back yesterday or a couple of days ago, the title and the text. And, and last night I was laying there thinking about, oh, wish I'd have told her to play clothed in the righteousness of Christ. She did it anyway. So that was good. That was good. If you knew that song, I hope you were saying the words to yourself because they're powerful words. We come to Romans 10. We looked at Romans 9 where Paul has talked about God's sovereignty in its completeness. We saw that uh, Paul is saying, listen, God's sovereignty is unchallenged. And, and who are we to say, God, we don't like the way you do it? Who are we to question how God does what God does? I was shown an article this morning that was quite interesting. Uh, really doesn't relate to the sermon, but it just kind of struck me hard. Uh, a professor, a former professor at Southern Seminary from, as I refer to it, the old days before Moeller, uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, a guy named Frank Tupper. I didn't know until this morning that Frank had died. And Frank, Frank did die, uh, evidently, in the last few days. And, and he was well known for his view of limited providence, the limited providence of God. And the headline on this article was, God does what he can, according to Frank Tupper. Well, of course, Fra- Frank's view is God does what he can, but bless his heart, he just can't do everything. He's just limited by what he can accomplish. He wrote that. He wrote a book about that when his wife died of cancer. And then about three or four years ago, he fell in his home and, and broke, some, broke his back or neck or something and has been in a wheelchair for about the last three years. And he continued to proclaim, you know, well, God couldn't prevent any of this. God was just helpless with that. Well, Paul wants us to see in chapter 9 that we looked at clearly over the last couple of sermons that that is not the way God is. God is absolutely, completely sovereign. God is a God who reigns, and God is not a God who does what he can. God is a God who does what he does, when he wants to do it, as he wants to do it, whenever he wants to do it, okay? That's, that's free. That's not a part of the sermon today, okay? That's just added for your benefit. But in Romans 10, Paul moves into a, a little different focus still talking about salvation, still talking about Israel, still struggling over the, his, his concern for his fellow Israelites, that, that they are not trusting Christ, that they are not following Christ, that they, are, they have, as he said in verses 30 through 33 of chapter 9, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is the righteousness, righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written in Isaiah 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You notice there is a personal pronoun there. Him who believes in him. A stumbling stone sounds like an inanimate object. 
But, but Isaiah is pointing ahead and saying, I am sending one who is going to be the salvation of his people, but the Jewish people are going to struggle with that. They're going to have trouble with, with giving up the law as a way of righteousness and seeing that righteousness comes by being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so Christ is like, as it were, a, a stumbling stone to them. When they hear Christ proclaimed, they reject. When they hear Christ declared as the very Son of God, the Messiah, the one who has come in order to redeem his people from his sin, their sins, he rejects. They reject. And that breaks Paul's heart. He started chapter 9 by saying, I long, I wish, I pray that, that they, the Israelites, would come to Christ. I, Paul even says in chapter 9 a very, a, a very interesting statement. He said, I would be willing to be accursed if they would be saved. That is, I'd be willing to give up my salvation, my relationship with Christ, with God through Christ. I'd be willing to give all that up if they would just see that the stone they're stumbling over is really the cornerstone of all salvation. Paul said, I'd do that because I love my people that much. Well, he begins chapter 10 in much the same way. There's this passionate feeling from Paul's heart. He says, brothers, let's follow along reading verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I hear them witness, uh, excuse me, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, And seeking to establish their own, that is their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That is, if you want to Try to get your righteousness and your salvation by keeping the law well and good, but you better live by them perfectly, totally, without any reservation, without any stumbling whatsoever. It better be perfect. That's what Moses is saying. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will ascend into the abyss, that is the realm of the dead, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near to you, in your mouth, and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul, the only quote in chapter 10 is right there, and it's, it's not set, aside, it's set apart like the Isaiah and Hosea passages are in chapter 9, but that one word, the word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart, is almost an exact quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14. Paul, uh, Moses saying to the children of Israel, God's not far off. God is not some kind of an unreachable person, and, and his truth is not something that you, you can't understand and can't glean from. He's saying, listen, he's near. The word of faith, the word of truth is right near. It's in your mouth, it's in your heart. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes 
and is justified. And with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. He's already said in chapter 9 that the Jews had all sorts of benefits. They ought to be the ones who believe, but there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Look at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul says, don't you understand something? As I look at my brother's by the flesh, I wish that they would see Christ. I wish in the deepest part of my heart that they would come to faith in Christ. That ought to be our desire for our kinsmen, if you will. Those who are our brothers and sisters of the flesh in our own family and our friends and our neighbors, there ought to be that impassioned desire above everything else that I wish that they would see Christ. I wish that they would come to faith in Christ, especially those who have no use for God, no use for Christ. That ought to be our prayer. We ought not not be ambivalent to that. It ought to hurt us. It ought to pain us. When we know the joy of salvation, we read out of Psalm 51, that great prayer of confession of David after his sin with Bathsheba and his sin against the nation, his his sin against Bathsheba's husband Uriah, and on and on and on you go. He confesses and he prays and he he says, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I mean, there's, there's something that we know in Christ that the world doesn't know, and that's the joy of his salvation. Now, they may know happiness at times. They may know what it means to be satisfied by the world. They may know what it means to rejoice in in, in temporal things. But they do not understand the joy that is not even my joy, but it's His joy that is worked in me by faith, by grace, and by His Holy Spirit. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation, David cries. And and Paul is saying here, I wish that my fellow kinsmen, I wish that those who are like me in the flesh would be able to know the joy. They'd be able to understand what it means to come to faith in Christ. Listen, there's no doubt they are zealous. There's no doubt that they they are seeking a righteousness through law-keeping. And they will fight you over that. There's no doubt that they want to be able to say, God, don't you see how good I am? I'm working hard to keep your law. I'm working hard to carry out the sacrifices. I'm working hard to do everything, every jot, every tittle, every little bit of the law that I possibly can. I'm zealous to keep your law. Those Jews, those Greeks, those Gentiles, they don't care about your law. But I do. I care about being as righteous as I possibly can. And Paul says what they don't understand is that their righteousness is as filthy rags. They have a zeal for God. Do you think Paul understood what it was like to have a zeal for God that was not based on knowledge? That's what he says their problem is. It's not based on knowledge of the the revelation of God. It's not based on faith. Do you think Paul understood what it meant to be zealous for God without knowledge? Of course we do. 
Well, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he said in Philippians chapter 3. He, he was a rabbi. He was, he, he was righteous in everybody's eyes. Everybody looked at Paul and said, there goes a righteous man. And he said, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for zeal, I saw those Christians as those who did not follow the law and the, the law of Moses and, and all, the, all the sacrifices and all the festivals and all the fastings and all the feastings. I, I saw that they didn't follow it. They just said they had faith in, in Christ alone. And I set out to destroy them. I, I was on my way. I was persecuting the church. I had a zeal for God but it was not based on knowledge. And Paul says that is their problem. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. Paul said in, in chapter 1, if you remember, that, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for there's a power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And by it, by the gospel, by the truth of the gospel message, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's not revealed in keeping law. It's not revealed in setting up your own standards. You know, one of the biggest problems with a lot of Christians, professing Christians today, is that they will look around and they'll say, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing better than Todd is. Just picking on him because he's safe. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I, well, I, I don't do the things. I don't do the things that Johnny does. And, and they're believers, and they're Christians, and they, they, they say they know Christ, but I'm better than they are. Folks, that's setting up a false standard that is a self-righteousness, not a righteousness of God. Paul says, you've got to have a knowledge. You can't be ignorant of the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is pure. God's righteousness is complete. And, and if you try to establish your own and not submit to the righteousness of God, Paul says then you are stumbling. You're really deceiving yourself. You've been self-deceived. You're thinking, I'm doing great. When you're looking to what you can do, not to what Christ has done. Do you see that? That's vital that you see that. Israel was ignorant of the law, of the righteousness, looking at the law, they thought they had it. They were fully aware of the righteous standard that God required, but they were so ignorant they thought they could do it themselves. And Paul wants them to see that they can't. They, they tried to establish their own righteousness. They, they didn't understand that righteousness is a gift from God, and they thought to make their own what they followed. Listen, if you're going to rely on law-keeping for your righteousness, can't miss it anywhere. If you're going to require, or if you're going to try to, to meet the requirements of God in your own strength, you, you can't have a sinful thought. You can't have a sinful act. You can't even have a little slip up. You can't even be a little peccadillo. You know, oh, I, it's no big deal. It has to be perfect. Paul says we cannot do that. Christ is the only law keeper 
He's the only one who kept it perfectly. He's the only one that stands to give us His own righteousness imputed to us on the basis of faith. You know, think about where the, where the Gospels emphasize the righteousness of Christ. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read those and read them carefully, you, you see that there's this, there's this pointing to perfectly that Jesus kept law perfectly in every instance. He, he, he never sinned. Peter, in his, in his epistle, said he was a man without guile. He had no guile in his mouth. He, he, he never spoke evil. He never spoke anything that was in violation of God's perfect, perfection. He lived out the perfection of God. And that's where we have to find our perfection. So he says the Jews try. They're, they're zealous. Boy, they, they, they put a lot of Gentile Christians and a lot of Jewish Christians to, to, uh, to shame. I had someone ask me not long ago, uh, how many times a day do you pray? Now, that's a bold question to ask a pastor. How many times a day do you pray? And I said, well, I, I tried to be real spiritual. I said, well, I'm, I just follow the Apostle Paul. I pray without ceasing. They didn't buy it. No, no, no. How many times do you stop a day and spend a, a concentrated time in prayer? I said, well, I don't have a set, I don't have a set schedule where I do that. Some days I, I spend more time in prayer. Some days I spend less time. I always start the day. I, I, I always do it over my studies. and I, I, I pray a lot, I think, but what are you getting at? So well, how can you say you're more sincere than, say, a Muslim who, who spends five times a day at prescribed times, they hear the sound, they know the time, they roll out their prayer mat, they get on their face before God, and they recite their prayers, and they do that, and I'll use this word somewhat tongue-in-cheek, they do that religiously, every day, just the right time. Why? looks to me like their commitment to prayer and their commitment to God is greater than yours. And I said, you know what? If it were up to me for my salvation, I'd do it 20 times a day. Well, God only said, uh, Allah only said do it five times a day, or Muhammad only said do it five times a day. And so they're just being obedient to the law, their law. To which I said, yes. But what if they miss it one day? What if they don't say the prayer exactly right? Maybe they say the morning prayer when they should have said the evening prayer. Maybe, maybe their zeal is there. there. There's no doubt a zeal and a commitment. But it's not based on knowledge. It's not based on righteousness. It's not based on what God's Word says. We have a saying in our, in our culture today. Uh, you'll hear it all the time. You'll hear it implied even if it's not stated emphatically. And that, that statement is something like this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. You ever heard that? Listen for it. Listen for it in the people you work with. Listen for it in the people you, you watch on TV. Listen for it in the news. Listen for it in, uh, in this political season especially. doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Well, basically what Paul is saying here is that is a false worldview. 
It's not a matter of how sincere you are. The Jews were sincere. They were zealous. They were emphatic about their zealousness for the, for the law of God. But their sincerity got them nowhere because they were still sinners in their sin. It's only in Christ. And so he goes on to talk, starting in verse 6, with, with this, that true righteousness only comes through faith. Verses 6 and 7, he says, it's not difficult. You're, you're not having to pray Christ down from heaven. You're not having to say, oh, Lord, please, please, I'm showing my sincerity. I'm showing my zealousness. I'll even cut myself or I'll, I'll, I'll hurt myself. Lord, if you'll just come down from heaven and show me. He said, you don't have to do that. Nor do you go to the grave, the abyss, Sheol, and, and somehow thinking he's still in the realm of the dead. He's risen. He's not there. You can't call him up from the dead, and, and so you can't go to a medium and say, would you just conjure up Jesus for me so he can tell me I'm okay? Paul says, it's not that hard. Why, even Moses said, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we pro." claim justification by faith is very simple paul says you don't have to have a theology degree to understand it you don't have to have gone through years and years and years of schooling to understand it it's revealed by his holy spirit it's in your heart it's in your mouth that's why he says here here's the key Verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth, maybe, maybe you can be saved if you keep the law. That's what some of the Jews and the Judaizers might have said. They might say, oh yeah, you've got to you got to have Jesus in there. We understand, but you've got to keep the law, too. So you confess, you believe, but keep the law. Paul says, no. Here it is, emphatically. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, I want you to see something here, because this is really important. That is the first and simplest of the creeds. You know, you've got the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon Creed and all these creeds. They're very good. And I, I love reading them and studying them. But here's the most basic and the earliest creed that ever existed. Jesus is Lord. What did Pastor Michael ask Brittany this morning before she went down into the baptismal waters? Who is your Lord? Not just who's your Savior. Not just, do you have somebody that's going to help you through this life? No. Who is Lord? And by the way, she is very soft-spoken, but she gave the right answer if you heard her. If you didn't, I'm telling you, she gave the right answer. Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead... That, see, the resurrection for Paul and the resurrection for the Scriptures is always the linchpin. Paul said the uh, Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, if Christ be not risen, then, then this is a waste of time, folks. 
If Christ be not risen, why are we here? Why are we doing this? But of course, he says he is risen. And so here he says, if, if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the power of the resurrection power, then you will be saved. Jesus Lord, God raised him from the dead, and that settles the whole matter as far as the apostles go. And I won't just throw Paul there. I'll put all the apostles in the early church. It was later on that the church began to institutionalize and began to put in all sorts of manner of ritual and rites and things that had nothing to do with that. You, you want to come to faith in Christ? You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go, do a certain, uh, go through a certain ritual. All you have to do is confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has done a work in him, through him, by him, through the cross and his resurrection that could not have been accomplished any other way especially not by your law-keeping. One of my favorite writers wrote a lot of books, but he wrote a lot of hymns. It's a guy named Horatius Bonar. He was in the 1800s, lived from 1808 to 1889. I don't know exactly when he wrote this hymn, but I love this hymn. I want to read this hymn to you. It's not long. Verse 1, Upon a life... I have not lived. Upon a death, I did not die. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. Life of Christ, perfect. Fulfilling the law. Paul said even that, that Christ is the end of the law. doesn't mean the law doesn't matter anymore. It just means he's fulfilled it completely. He's lived it. And it's the end of the law for righteousness. It's for everyone who believes. Second verse says, Not on my tears which I have shed, nor on the sorrows that I have known, another's tears, another's griefs. On these I rest, on these alone. The chorus says, O Jesus, Son of God, I build on what your cross has done for me. There both my death and life I read, my guilt, my pardon, there I see. And then there's a third verse. Lord, I believe. Confess with my mouth. Lord, I believe. Oh, deal with me. As one who has your word believed, I take the gift, Lord. Look on me. As one who has your gift received. Paul said, don't you understand something? This life, this righteousness, is not based on law-keeping. Many of you this morning, as I did, when the offering plate was passed around, you dropped something in it. Some of you a lot, some of you a little, some of you in the middle. I want you to know God wasn't looking down saying, Oh, Haynes, you blew it on that one. You should have given more. He, he didn't... Go over to my account and say, okay, he gave this much. That's good or bad. He didn't do that for you either if you're in Christ. 
Many of you, some of you may be here this morning because you say, I can't miss church because, you know, it might displease God. Your being here this morning doesn't give you any more brownie points than somebody that's not here. Now, I think you ought to be here. Absolutely. Do I think this ought to be where you are every time we're worshiping the Lord? Absolutely. But that doesn't change your status with Christ. It doesn't change your status with God. It's good for you, not for Him. It's beneficial for you to, to be together with other believers, worshiping and praising, praying together, hearing the Word together. I mean, that, that, that's what this is all about, folks. Another's life, another's death is where I stake my whole eternity. Paul says in verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The Jews had benefits, absolutely. They had the covenants, they had the prophets, they had the law, they had the temple worship. I mean, they had, they had so many things pointing toward Christ's coming, and they thought that they were the end in of themselves, not pointing to the one that was yet to come. They had sacrifices that were pictures of Christ. So they had benefits. But Paul says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches, bestowing His riches, His blessings, in all the heavenly places, all blessings, all riches in heavenly places, His riches on all who call on Him. And then verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Doesn't matter if they're Jew, doesn't matter if they're Greek, doesn't matter if they're a horrendous, godless horrible, criminal sinner or very religious, very self-righteous person. Have you ever thought about it? I don't, I better use a different example. No, I'll use that one because it's about as horrible as we can think about it. Have you ever thought about it that if Adolf Hitler had before his death confessed Christ with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in his heart that God raised him from the dead, that he would have been saved? Oh, no, not after all the atrocities he did. Not after all the horrors that he did. Yeah, after all the atrocities and horrors that he did. Have you ever thought about, I'll date myself here, the church lady? who's always at church and always self-righteous and always talking about what everybody else is doing that's wrong and not ever looking at her own life, who thinks that she is justified by herself suffering the pangs of hell right now? Religion doesn't get it. Self-righteousness doesn't get it. Church doesn't do it. I titled this sermon, Two Paths to Righteousness. There's actually a second part of the sermon that I didn't put in the bulletin for a reason. 
And that's this. There are two paths to righteousness, but only one that will get you there. There's two paths to righteousness. And you can try all you want in your own strength to do it. But the only path that leads to righteousness is I confess. Because you see, what you confess with your mouth is contingent upon what you believe in your heart. So the the common parable of 21st century America, doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It does matter what you believe to be sincere in what you say. If you believe in your heart, it will exude forth in confession of Jesus as Lord. I find it, I find it, I'm getting, I'm going to end here in just a second. But I find it interesting that Paul doesn't say, as long as you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I think there's probably truth in that. But I think what Paul is saying here is, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you cannot help but speak that he is Lord. Talking to somebody this morning that said they knew somebody whose statement was, and they're not in the church, so I'll use this, hopefully, okay, who said, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, I just don't live like it. I want to have a gong. Gong! You know, somebody says something like that. Or a buzzer that goes off. (laughs) No, no, you don't get it. If you're a Christian, you don't try to live like it so you can fool other people. But if you're a Christian, if Christ is, is in your life, if you have believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and there is that salvific, that salvific truth that you have been saved and you have been justified, both those there I think Paul uses the same way, then you will be saved. Then you cannot help but live it. Not perfectly, perhaps. But you can't help but confess it. There's nothing that brings me greater joy than seeing a new believer. You know why? Because they just want to talk about what Christ has done in their life. There's nothing sadder to me than an older believer that just assumes everybody knows. Jesus is Lord. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, just briefly, there are a lot of people who seem to call on the name of the Lord who aren't saved. You ever heard somebody use the expression, Oh my God. Well, it's kind of calling on the name of the Lord, isn't it? But it's in a very blasphemous way. I've been at Alabama football games before and had someone stand up and say, Praise the Lord! Because they scored a touchdown. They weren't calling upon the name of the Lord. Just because you use the name doesn't mean you're calling upon His name. It means you trust Him means you profess Him as your Lord. It means He's made a difference in your life. Pray with me.
Holy Father, I thank you this morning that our eternity is based upon a life we have not lived, upon a death we did not die, Christ's life, Christ's death. Thank you, Lord, for not counting my sin against me. Thank you, Lord, for times I have failed you. You didn't say enough of you, Haynes. I don't want anything else to do with you. Thank you, Lord, that you clothed me in the righteousness of Christ alone. It's not my sincerity. It's not my law-keeping. It's his death, his burial. And his resurrection. Thank you, Father, for that. And I pray for men and women and young people here this morning that do not know that truth. They're blinded to it by their own sin. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will open their eyes to see. Your Holy Spirit will open their heart to believe. Lord, you will do in them what they cannot do and would not do apart from your work. Bring them to faith in Christ. Thank you, Father. For we pray in Jesus' name.